Hello and welcome to the October 2008 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, science that's changing your world. This podcast is brought to you by the Harvard Medical School Office of Public Affairs in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Alyssa Neller. And this month we're going to be diving into the world of neurobiology. First we'll take a look at a collaborative effort to tackle neurodegenerative diseases. Then we'll take a look at some of the controversy over the roots of autism. We're also going to learn about a research team that has discovered this interesting symbiotic relationship between beetles and bacteria. It's a relationship that has actually resulted in the destruction of pine forests. But first, I had a chance to chat with Adrian Ivinson. He's the director of the Harvard Neurodiscovery Center, which is taking a collaborative approach to tackling some really complex neurological problems. We have this phenomenal infrastructure of uh, scientists and facilities in um, all areas of neurology and neurodegenerative diseases. And that's spread across the Harvard system, so the affiliated hospitals and the various schools, uh, etc. And there was an opportunity there to see if we could uh, bring some of those components together because they were working pretty much in isolation. So that was the first part. It's like a, like a three-legged stool. You, know, you take one of the legs away and we fall over. And the second leg was, we've got a phenomenal capacity in the, in the local environment here, and in particular at the med school and Department of Neurobiology and other departments around, for really terrific basic science in the neurosciences. And what I think they wanted to do was maybe just uh, rest a finger gently on the other side of that balance in favor of translational research. So could we build a mechanism that would allow us to routinely look inside the basic biology engine that is so vibrant in this system and look for opportunities to translate that into applications that would be of uh, importance to patients. And the third leg of the stool was simply to say that the neurodegenerative diseases, although we tend to study them in isolation, maybe that's not the best way of doing it because actually these diseases, whereas they are all quite distinct diseases, they do nonetheless have a lot in common. So let's uh, put them under one umbrella and see if we can use the skills and the knowledge that we've developed in one disease to the benefit of the other. So in a sense, thinking more holistically about neurodegenerative diseases and arriving at a clinical solution quicker, is that...? Yes, absolutely. And it might not be a quick path to a clinical solution. Um, with these diseases, they've been so challenging over the years that we rarely talk about cures. That's a, that's a long jump to make. But in terms of thinking of what sort of therapies might be used in terms of slowing the disease down or, or preventing the disease process, yes, absolutely. We launched a drug discovery uh, program right at the start of the, of the center. And the idea was there that you could combine the uh, mechanistic understanding that was coming out of the Harvard system with a very rigorous and uh, focused drug discovery effort that borrows a lot from uh, the biotech industry. Maybe we could have the best of both worlds. Wasn't this in uh, previous years more the role of biotech and pharma to do this kind of thing? And are they not doing it anymore? What <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely the role of biotech and pharma, and it still is. Um, we're not trying to uh, duplicate in any way what they're doing. We don't have the internal capacity. We don't have the deep pockets that they do at all. So this is not a competitive move, if you like. But what we recognize is that there are certain diseases which are not getting the attention from biotech and pharma that we think they ought to. Um, many of the diseases we work with, uh, ALS, Huntington's, even um, you know, Parkinson's to a certain extent, 
are not getting that sort of attention. They're really tough diseases to understand. And the route to disease-modifying drugs, as opposed to drugs that treat symptoms, is a real tough road for a biotech or a pharma to make a commitment to. So our idea was that maybe we can undertake on their behalf, in effect, the very early high-risk stages of the drug discovery process and get it just to the stage where we can say to them, we've taken the first steps, this is what we're thinking. We have this new target for Parkinson's disease and uh, we have some proof of principle in a mouse model for Parkinson's disease. Now maybe it's time for biotech or pharma to um, either partner with us to move that project further along or indeed license it from us. So it's probably really hard at this point to say when you might start to see some of these projects coming to fruition then. Yeah, these are long-term efforts always. I mean, drug discovery is a very slow process. It can take, you know, a decade or more. And um, we're dealing just with the first few years of that process. But our thinking is that on those diseases that are not getting the attention from biotech and pharma, we have to make this investment in the early stages. Uh, Otherwise, we just don't see it happening. A number of uh, universities have started doing this. And indeed, the NIH Uh, and the uh, National Institutes of Neurological Diseases in particular has a program along these lines. When did you come to the conclusion that we really needed um, kind of a different model for working on this to achieve results more quickly? I I think, honestly, I've I've always thought that 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 should be the case. Uh, I remember as a junior investigator in the lab in the UK, uh, wondering why uh, we didn't share our early results with our colleagues when we went to conferences, why we were so cagey about them. And even as a, as a very junior and naive investigator, uh, one of the projects that I was proudest of then, and to a certain extent still am now, was um, we were developing a new uh, kit of uh, reagents with which to do a better job of matching organ donors and organ recipients. And um, a few people heard about it and said, oh, we're going to go and develop the kit. You know, we're going to try that. And we said, well, wait a minute. Why would you want to repeat this? Here, have this one. And a few people liked that. And so we ended up dispersing it to 30, 35 groups around the UK. And I think it was a a really modest contribution to the field, but it just seemed like a better way to do it. It was the approach you were taking. It It seemed to make sense. And then working on nature genetics and nature medicine and some of the other journals, we would so often see terrific investigators in the same institution competing with each other. They would submit research results that were wonderfully complementary, and yet they hadn't shared them with each other, even though they were literally down the corridor. And, um, you know, when you've seen that a few times, you're just struck by the inefficiency of that system. A bit of competition makes people work that little bit harder, makes them run that little bit faster. That's good. But at some point, the competition is no longer a positive force. It's now, if anything, a a little bit of a hindrance. And um, we're trying to take a very different approach. And that's really a cultural shift. That's a cultural shift. That's right. Diagnoses of autism are on the rise. In fact, the Center for Disease Control reports that about one in every 150 children in the U.S. currently has some form of autism. Ten years ago, this estimate was one in 2,500. This is Yvonne Ariki, and I'm doing a special report on autism spectrum disorders. I asked Dr. Christopher Walsh, who is Chief of Genetics at Children's Hospital Boston, 
to explain this troubling trend. The reasons for that increased prevalence are uncertain and are hotly debated. One reason, undoubtedly, why it's diagnosed more commonly than it used to be is because we have more doctors than we used to, and we have more clinical psychologists than we used to, and we have more uh, teachers than we used to. And so our ability to diagnose it is improved. Another reason why it's diagnosed more frequently is uh, the possibility that some kids that used to get a different diagnosis, such as mental retardation, now get a diagnosis of autism. Or whether some kids that would have, in an earlier generation, just been regarded as peculiar but not really out of the range of normal are now given a diagnosis of high-functioning autism. And we really don't know how big of an effect those kinds of things have. That's called diagnostic substitution. But um, again, I think there is some agreement that that's also at least partly responsible for it. So then we're left with the question, are there environmental reasons or are there genetic reasons why the true prevalence is more common? Walsh, who is also an HMS professor, believes that autism is primarily a genetic disorder. But unlike conditions like cystic fibrosis, where the disease can be attributed to the same gene mutation in each case, autism is unique in that the gene mutation or mutations associated with the disorder often differ across patients. In general, we think of autism as um, kind of like Tolstoy like Anna Karenina, where he says that all happy families are the same, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So by finding and comparing uh, many large families, we have in fact found so far that different families point us to different parts of the genome. And then in a smaller proportion of families, we've actually been able to work our way right down to the responsible gene. And again, we've found that in the half a dozen or so families we've studied successfully, the gene has been different every time. On the other hand, some of these genes that we've found seem to begin to point towards some common brain mechanisms that we think might be very useful to understand in terms of treatments. Uh, and these common brain mechanisms seem to be those that are involved in the way the cells in the brain respond to learning. So one of the paradoxes of autism is the fact that it is a genetic condition, and yet it also seems to be a condition which gets at the essence of what the brain is meant to do, which is to learn. And we think of learning as nature's way of avoiding genetics. So could autism be a genetic condition that affects the way our brains learn from experience and responds to our environment? For the most part, research has been looking at abnormalities in brain cell connectivity in autism. But other research has looked at autism from a different angle. Because the condition is not diagnosed until about two years of age, it has been argued that exposure to something in the environment in the first years of life might trigger its onset. Dr. Martha Herbert, assistant professor of neurology at HMS, holds the view that autism is not just a genetically determined brain disorder, but a systemic condition that involves a complex interplay between genetics and the environment. There are changes in the brain having to do with our synapses, the way our nerves talk to ner neurons talk to each other, and that can happen due to genetic mutations and components of the neurons, but those components of the neurons can also be vulnerable to environmental agents such as toxins or infections or immune reactions to our environment. So I'm very concerned that it's something about the way we live and what we've been putting in our environment that's making the numbers go up. And I think from a public health point of view, we need to take that into account and not just assume that these numbers are artifacts. I spoke to Dr. Michael Greenberg, chair of the HMS Department of Neurobiology, who recently published a paper with Walsh that linked particular genes to autism. 
I asked him what he thinks about the environment's role in autism. People think for most diseases or disorders now in our 21st century environment that there are lots of toxins in the environment and man-made products that could cause this disorder or this disease. It's a possibility, but one has to go beyond that to evidence. And so far, I think with autism, there isn't good evidence. My expectation is that when we know everything there is to know, that there probably will be some cases where there's environmental influences. But I think the preponderance of the evidence right now is consistent with genetic causes. As scientists continue to debate the issue, their research moves ahead, thanks in large part to the many families of autistic children who agree to take part in medical research. I stopped at the Autism Phenotyping Lab at the Developmental Medicine Centre at Children's Hospital, where they collect much of the genetic, physiological and behavioural data that are used in studies like those by Dr Walsh. I spoke to Dr Ellen Hansen, a clinical psychologist at the centre, who works directly with these families. Our families are amazing. That's why we try to get so much information, because who knows what could be important down the line, because we really don't understand very much yet about autism and what causes it and what helps kids and what doesn't help. Nothing has really been shown to be this magic bullet or this cure-all, unfortunately. I'm excited my family is when they come in. If there was something, you know, that I knew that caused this or could cure it, believe me, <laughs> why wouldn't I tell you? Like, I'd love to be put out of my job. Researchers from Harvard Medical School and the University of Madison, Wisconsin, have found some pretty interesting and downright weird ways that insects and bacteria have learned to play together. To understand their relationship, imagine the following. Enter our protagonist. The pine beetle, boring its way into a pine tree to lay a few hundred eggs. This mother beetle also brings with her some yummy fungus, baby food to keep those little darlings happy and healthy. Enter the antagonist. The mite a microscopic interloper that secretly hitched a ride on the beetle. This nefarious mite sneaks in a toxic fungus to destroy the good fungal baby food. But Mother Beetle is ready, carrying with her, of all things, a bacteria that neutralizes the mite's toxic fungus. As a result... The babies thrive, and the nefarious mite is thwarted. Now, the fact that this happy ending also results in the destruction of pine forests, well, that's another story. But the scientists believe that they can now look more intelligently at nature and discover new sources of antifungal agents and antibiotics. But that's not all, according to HMS researcher John Clardy. I think what's surprising about this is that it will soon be completely unsurprising that insects of all kinds are going to be found to associate with bacteria, and bacteria in turn associated with insects. Uh, it's a way they both can prosper. Insects can vector the bacteria from one, one home to another, they can provide a protected environment, and the bacteria can then help defend the insect with the small molecules that they make. And my prediction is that soon, everywhere, people will be looking and finding that insects and bacteria have formed these very profitable, mutualistic relationships. So, ask not what your bugs can do for your bacteria. 
Ask what your bacteria can do for your bugs. Well, you get the point. This concludes the October episode. We'll leave you with a Zen proverb. The mind makes a great servant, but a terrible master. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. Music for this episode was arranged by our colleague, John Ryan. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit the Harvard Medicine website at hms.harvard.edu.